The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And over the next hour, we're going to explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Talk to one of the biggest players in the industry this week. It's Bain Capital co-chairman and Boston Celtics owner Steve Paliuka. He joined us from the bubble down in Orlando in the midst of a belated but very exciting NBA season. So that's straight ahead. But, Lynchy, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on. Staying on the NBA for a second, I have been glued to the NBA playoffs. The quality of basketball has been unmatched. These guys are just dazzling me every night. I mean, how they're able to up and down and up and down. And I think that the key of this whole thing is the wear and tear of getting yep. on an airplane and traveling, especially now that you're getting into conference you know, uh, championships. I mean, you know, L.A. would have to fly to Denver and back and forth, and Boston would have to fly the whole East Coast down to Miami and back and forth. And I think that's been one of the key reasons you're seeing such quality basketball and fresh legs, especially in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and we get into this a little later on in the conversation with Steve Paliuka. I mean, things are going to change a little bit. I mean, some of it is going to be by necessity in terms of the virus we're still going to be wrestling with when the next season starts. And mm. uh, he has some thoughts about where we may end up there, although it's still so up uh, up in the air day to day, as you'll hear him say. But I, I have to think, just like with the rest of our lives, a lot of things are going to stick. Let's talk a little NFL, if we can. Again, so far, so good. And, and we've seen some good games, although interestingly, in contrast to what we're talking about with the NBA, a huge raft of injuries in week two. Well, and a lot of the doctors uh, that I've been reading about, and I talked to one orthopedic surgeon, says that that is because of the lack of OTAs, mini camps, and preseason football games, yeah. which the veterans abhor. They, they hate preseason games. The only guys that like them are the rookies and the coaches because it's the only time you can see them in real game situations. So many people can be, can be stars in practice but just duds when the lights go on and they play against somebody in a different color uniform. Um, but I get it, you know, the, the, the consensus seems to be that the lack of all this proper training and buildup and exercise and, and practice and OTAs is the result of some of these injuries. And it's too bad because, you know, there's some real stars that have been knocked out. You know, Joey yeah. Bosa went down and uh, he's Yeah, gone. Saquon Barkley Sa- went down. Saquon Barkley. Christian McCaffrey is, is out McCaffrey for at least down. a month. 
You know, it's interesting. If you're on our podcast feed, you can check out Rich Truman and Damian Sassauer. I caught up with them this week for our um, fantasy picks. And Rich Truman was saying on that pod that Saquon Barkley and Christian McCaffrey were in many drafts the top two players taken. So (laughs) for you fantasy players out there, uh, that's not good news. You're having to, to scramble a bit. Let's talk a little bit about college football. If we can, yeah. it's sort of back in action, but fits and starts more than we've seen probably in any other sport more. Well, Notre Dame has to postpone its game against Wake Forest because of a number of positive COVID uh, cases. And that was the big fear with college sports that the unlike professional who uh, are going home to an apartment and uh, maybe a wife or a girlfriend, um, these guys are going back to dorm rooms and Long gone are the days when college campuses had dormitories strictly for the football players. Uh, that th- Those have, have been blown apart. They live with the general uh, populace on campus. And, you know, it's it, it, wasn't, it was only just a matter of uh, time for some member of some team to become infected and spread it, and Notre Dame is uh, paying the price for it. I'm surprised it hasn't happened to more teams, although the University of Houston has oh. had four openers postponed because yeah. their opponent had too many players tested positive. Yeah, I, I think we're going to limp to the finish here with um, yeah, I, with college I football. I mean, we talked on the we talked in the program last week about the Big Ten essentially buckling and, and figuring it out. Uh, Pac-12 following, you know, there was a lot of pressure. There's a lot of economic pressure as we talked about uh, last week. But the reality of this virus, it doesn't care about economics, and it doesn't care about whether you need to make money for your school or your community or whatever it is. So it is going to be something very, very tricky to watch. And Lynchy, I guess even though fewer and fewer people seem to care about it, baseball is still playing, which is kind of incredible, if I do say so myself. <laughs> now, did you bring that up because your Atlanta Braves have clinched the uh, National League East? Is Listen, I take... I take any win I can get. You're you're going to hear later on in the show, uh, dear audience, a, a little some contretemps between uh, me and these two Boston guys who gang up on me, twenty eight three, and all that good stuff. But yeah, baseball. Hey, it's happening. Hey, you know what? I'm happy for the people in Tampa Bay. They win the American League East over the mighty Yankees. Who would have thought it? Right? Chicago yeah. White Sox on uh, uh, battling it out with Minnesota and Cleveland in the Central. The Oakland A's with the lowest payroll, winning in the National League and the American League West. And then right now you get six teams uh, going into the weekend. This is being taped on a Thursday morning. Six teams are fighting for four uh, National League playoff spots. The bad news for baseball is that we're in the uh, knee-deep and with a lot of interest in, in um, the National Football League right now. The NBA Conference Finals are going on. The Stanley Cup Finals are going on. And I just think baseball is going to finish a uh, distant, uh, in terms of viewership, is going to finish distant, distantly last. I think you're right. I think you're right. I I have not heard. I mean, I talk and think a lot about sports every day, and I cannot tell you how little baseball has come up just in the day-to-day conversation. One uh, standout I will mention because he's been a guest on this program, Trevor Bauer is having a heck of a season and is, is not the front runner, but is certainly in that top cohort of potential Cy Young winners there and uh he is he is just shooting the lights out he's a fascinating guy and his Cincinnati Reds are certainly in a hunt for one of those wild card spots and who knew the Miami Marlins you know I we know. thought they were going to take the whole league down and here they are <laughs> here they are in the playoffs it just shows it's not uh how you start it's how you finish today we're speaking with someone very familiar to 
both of us, and that is Bain Capital co-chairman, Boston Celtics owner, Steve Paliuka. Steve, I'm so excited we're getting to do this. It's such the perfect time to talk to you because you have been in the midst of so many things. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's great to be here. Well, we should point out that for those of you listening on the weekend, we're taping this on Thursday morning, September 24th. So we're going to stay away from the ins and outs of where the series with the Heat stands right now and really focus on kind of where we've been in this bubble and some of the lessons that Steve has learned throughout that and also some of the work that he's been doing in Boston. Let's start with this bubble, Steve. For you as an owner, for you as someone who cares about your team and your players and your staff, what has this been like? What's the experience been like for you? Well, it's definitely uh, very unique. Adam Silver and the NBA uh, have done a fantastic job. They've created a. Uh, I'm down here. In the, I'm down here in the in the secondary bubble right now. They have a separate uh, bubble for the uh, people coming from the from the investor group to see the game. Um, but uh, they've done an amazing job in terms of really protecting the players. And, and from day one, all the discussions at the board of governors meetings were, you know, can we reopen the season safely? And and basically, uh, you know, they they so far, knock on wood, they they've done that. Steve, tell me what you go through down there in the secondary bubble on a daily basis. From the moment you wake up and you want to like leave your your room, uh, what what are, what are all the protocols? Well, before you come down here, you have to get tested um, in in your home city a PCR test, which is a gold standard, the uh, you know, most accurate test. And uh, and then if you pass that test, you you fly down here, and then uh, as soon as you get to the um, designated hotel they have a testing center set up and you get tested uh, again um before you can go to the game so so and and then every subsequent day you get tested um the first the day before the game for the pcr test and then you get an antigen test the day of the game and then when you go to the game uh they have they have uh, at the disney facility they have separate pathways and and they've they put uh, you know glass up um between the stands and, and the court uh, again, to protect the players from 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 any any kind of risk, and then the, the primary bubble, uh, life in the primary bubble, is is is, is daily testing. Uh, fortunately, given the stage we're at right now, the families have families and families have come down. Um, it's a tough process. They have to quarantine in a hotel for seven days. You can't leave your hotel room for seven days. Uh, you get tested every day, and if you're if you get seven consecutive uh, negative tests, then then you can go into the into the primary bubble. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So that's how they've kind of worked it out. So what's it like watching a game? I mean, you know, you're used to sort of so being in the mix and you and Lynchy know better than I do sort of the general rowdiness that comes from a Celtics game and the fans are such a big part of it, so devoted. What is it like watching, you know, from this distance? It's a little bit like watching a game in a studio. Um, They've done a very nice job with the court and lighting. And actually, I think they've created a, a, as best as you can a game atmosphere. The uh, uh, having the fans virtually there from each team on home games it actually it actually makes a difference. 
and on television, uh, I think it's a great it's a great television product, and the same intensity is there. We we just don't have the surging crowd that we would have, you know, up up in the Boston Garden. Um, so I, I guess the you know we're just we're just happy to be able to see the team live, and they set up those procedures to do that. But it is definitely a different experience than uh, than being at, at the Garden. Are you allowed to a- interact with Brad Stevens and his staff, or any of the players? Or, or are you? Is this, is this secondary bubble mean exactly what it implies that you stay away from them? We're totally screened off from them. We 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 can wave to them through the glass. It's a little bit, you know, watching the game is a little bit like watching a game inside a fish tank. Hmm. You know, they they they've got eight foot rows of glass that's probably half an inch thick. Uh, kind of you know, kind of like they do in hockey, uh, but yep. but even even taller. Uh, but it's a good view. It's a, it's a, it's a really good view. So so we wave to them, uh, you know, from from here. We talk to them on the phone every day. But uh, there's there's zero interaction between anybody on the outside of the bubble and, and within the bubble. And so, Steve, the the product you mentioned. I mean, I have to say, just as a as an observer, as a fan who's been glued to my TV. It is pretty amazing the quality of the product, which I have to think ultimately, since we are talking about the business of sports, is good for business to some extent. I mean, people have been watching. Yeah, it's 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 really crushed the eighteen to forty nine you know demo, and uh, it is a great product on television. And it's not the same as being in a stadium, but they've got to be very very close. And what I really enjoyed is the, the intensity of the games is, is, is right up there with any playoff basketball I've ever seen. Interestingly, I, I've been here many, many times before at the Disney facility. I had three sons play AAU basketball, and uh, a couple of those teams reached the, the final 16 or final four. So we were here in August for probably a period of, of five or six years in a row as they all came up you know, playing, playing AAU and high school and college basketball. So we spent a lot of time in the Disney facility, but they've really uh, transformed this. So it's a it's a world class site. The players are playing with great intensity, and uh, it's true, you know, kind of pure basketball out there. And it's interesting. The home crowd advantage really has been taken away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most of the games we've won, we've been the, we've been the away team when, when we've won uh, most of our games, which is interesting. It, it, it kind of is a, is, a, is a leveling of that advantage in the playoffs, and, and it's given a lot of a lot of teams a shot to win. Yeah, I mean, this truly, whoever the champion is coming out of this thing will be the best team, and home court will have nothing to do with it. Let me ask you about this. The team's down there for more than two months. Uh, there's a lot of expenses, housing, meals, transportation. Who foots the bill for all this? Do the team split it? Is it strictly picked up by the NBA? Well, the, the teams are the NBA, so it basically comes out of the, out of the, the revenue, you know, the, the, the national revenue pool. And so it's being shared, you know, equally by the by the thirty teams. And we really wanted to continue the season. And, and I think Adam looked at every possible alternative, and this was the you know the, really the best the best way to do that. And it, and they did spare no expense with the testing, the facilities. They've just done a world class job down here. And it's it's been tough. Uh, thank God the families are there now. It's been tough on the players to, to be away from their families for so long and and be uh, kind kind of. Kind of isolated. It's a it's a it's a it's a very wonderful facility, but uh, you can go stir crazy day after day being being in the same place. Even in the secondary bubble, it, as you know, in the lockdown, it gets old. So, Steve, you've been doing this for a few years now. This whole owning a team thing. What have you learned? What's been the most interesting thing you've taken away so far? Well, that's uh, Jason. That's a good question. Um, it's been been close to twenty years now, and uh, it seems like yesterday. I, I think what I've learned is is the passion 
to the Boston Celtics and just sports in Boston is, is, is just wonderful. Um, it has a lot of ups and downs. You know, when, when, when you win, it's great. And when you lose, it's, it's tough. But I think I would learn, the, the biggest thing I learned is how hard our players and coaches, you know, work at this craft. Uh, I don't think that it, I had an appreciation before on the team of, of, of the hours, the grind, the preparation uh, that's needed to play world-class basketball. And, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of this team because they're, they're hard workers. They, they never give up, and, and uh, they, they, they're really out there you know, to win every night. And we've, we've been blessed with that for a long period of time in Boston. We've always competed, and we, we've actually had, um, since, since, since kind of the turnaround in 2008, we've had a bunch of great teams and, and have always been in the mix, and we're in the mix right now, and, and, and hopefully we can continue going forward. Steve, you're on the NBA Board of Governors. You're on the competition committee. I don't want to look past. I know you're only focused on what's going to happen with the series at hand. But we're looking for a restart for the next season come January. Will the teams, are they thinking about playing in their home arenas? Or does Orlando look like another possibility for the next year? Basically, uh, Adam Silver and, and the board is taking this on a day-by-day basis. Uh, uh, you know, It's interesting. When we signed up for the Disney facility, Florida was one of the lowest transmission states in the nation. And then in the, in the preparation and the, the couple of months it took to get ready, Florida became one of the highest states in transmission. So that, that actually was, you know, became a much greater concern. So with this virus, you just have to take it day by day. And um, the good news is we're making great progress on vaccines out there, um, making great progress on testing. There'll be new, new types of, of faster and cheaper testing and also therapeutics. So we're really hoping for the best that, uh, that, that there can be progress made against the disease with, with testing, with therapeutics, uh, with vaccines that will, will hopefully be coming out in the fourth quarter or the first quarter. And we just have to take it one day at a time. So Adam has, has, has thrown that date out there because that buys us time to see what happens. And uh, then they'll make the appropriate adjustments, whether it be playing in one bubble, four bubbles, or playing in venues. It's complicated because it's also subject to what what the rules of each each state and each city are. There are some some places that are hotspots that you know won't be able to play in their stadium. So, I guess the kind of short answer to it is we got to take it day by day, and then the NBA and their staff will, will assess what are the best options uh, near or in probably in, in uh, December to see what the outlook is. You know, Steve, uh, speaking of the, your role sort of really helping run the league, I do wonder what you make of some of the lessons that have come out of the bubble in terms of the operations of the league and some of the things that everybody just did because that is the way it was done. One of which I, I've heard and read a lot about, which is travel and, and how much people are realizing the wear and tear of getting on a plane every couple of days, what that did to the players' bodies, what that did to their ability to compete. You know, there was so much talk about, you know, loads in terms of uh, minutes, but travel really has seemed to be something that without it, player health and, and, and player effectiveness and, and the quality of the product, candidly, has changed. What do you make of the notion that maybe the way the season is constructed logistically changes based on what you've learned in the bubble? Well, pre-bubble, Jason, there were actually, uh, uh, Adam has put in a lot of changes. Uh, they, they tried to have less back-to-back, more extended time between traveling, tighter travel schedules. And obviously, it's complicated with the, the number of teams and number of cities. But 
pre-bubble, they were going in that direction again with player safety and yeah. the quality of the product. Uh, you know, you know, top of mind. Um, there's there's going to be no substitute for playing in these fantastic arenas. You know, going going to the Garden, going to Madison Square Garden, going down to Philadelphia. So, I don't I don't expect that will change, but they have definitely put an emphasis on on making the schedule more reasonable, uh, having having players have more time to rest. And coaching in general, uh, you know, has has used deeper squads to uh, kind of get through the 82 game season with less injuries and players being fresh. And and, and actually, I, I, I like that. I like to see eight or nine or ten guys playing, and that gives the chance for rookies to improve. And look, look at Tyler, Tyler Hero in this in this series. Uh, you know, he's 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 turning into a into a star before our eyes. Um, so so I think Adam's done a really good job at that, and that's been uh, the science. Of travel and sleep, and uh, and how to keep players as healthy as possible is really advanced. And 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 most of the clubs, including our, ourselves, you know, have someone who who specifically is in charge of all the medical, the training, um, and 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 kind of the health of the players to knit it all together. And I think it's paid big dividends. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Steve, I want to go back to something we talked a little bit about earlier because you and I got to know each other actually not in the business of sports, but in the business of private equity. And I've been fascinated watching you as part of what really is a vanguard of a new breed of owners, especially in the NBA. But then I think we can extend it into a lot of other sports, especially Major League Soccer, Premiership, all sorts of changes that are happening, Major League Baseball being another example. I do wonder what you make of that, because again, you were one of the early private equity style investors to get in, and you guys run it a little bit differently. And now there are more of you, especially in the NBA. What do you make of that? Well, I think we, you know, we were fortunate to be, be some of the first to uh, to apply some of the venture capital concepts. You know, Wick had been in venture capital, and uh, I had been in venture capital and, and private equity. And, you know, we, we brought a long-term approach to tr- trying to build a championship team. We had three goals when we purchased the team. The number one was to win a championship and do everything that it, that it, that it could possibly take to do that. Uh, number two was to make it a better fan experience when we bought the team. Uh, for example, we were the only team in the NBA that, that didn't have uh, kind of dancers and, and the, the kind of music, the, the modern music. And it took us three or four years working through it all back to get that in there. Um, and the, and the third objective was really to be a force in the community for, for positive good. And, and so we knew we we could accomplish the fan experience and we could accomplish uh, being being a, a, an incredible um, uh, operation to help the community. Uh, the harder one was winning a championship. The hardest one was winning the championship. And, I, I, and thank goodness that we got one of those. Um, as you've seen, uh, more people come in. You know, it's gotten more and more competitive. And, uh, you know, applying kind of business concepts to basketball, which would be taking a long-term approach. You know, many times in the past, as we studied it, teams would go out and, and sign up an aging, maybe famous player who, who was kind of at the end of, end of his uh, career, and you get a few more wins, and then they change the coach and 
change the general manager and, and keep keep repeating that cycle. Um, what, what I think private equity has brought in is, is kind of a long-term approach. We've been fortunate at the Celtics to have the same management team, um, the, the same general manager, and I think only two coaches. Um, we've, we've had uh, we've had Doc Rivers, who did a fantastic job for us, and uh, Brad Stevens for the entire tenure that, that we've been there. Um, and that stability and taking a long-term focus, I think, has paid dividends and it's paid dividends for other teams that have, that have risen up using that kind of management. So I think it's been, been good for the league, and and it's been innovative groups that's come in. Um, and, and Adam is, is expert in the media, trying new television angles, you know, looking at 3D. Uh, we have a conference every year called the NBA Tech Conference mm-hmm. at the All-Star Game where we talk about social media and how, how we can actually get the product more accessible to everybody in the world. So it's been, it's been an incredible ride for the 20 years, and the game is now globalized, and uh, soccer and basketball are, are really the two main global sports, and, and I think will still, still grow for a long period of time. If I can follow that just briefly, Steve, I do wonder, you know, sort of knowing how well-known you are in private equity circles as well, are you like the phone call that all these guys make when they are starting to think about buying a team? To, do you, have you become a little bit of a godfather? I guess I'm getting I'm getting kind of old enough to be in Godfather. I'm not I'm not uh, fortunately I'm not I'm not drinking some wine in a garden right now. But uh, I'm safer I'm safer in the bubble. But many many of my friends from from private equity are in the business, and and uh, uh, yes, we have lots of conversations. And and actually, you know, I'm trying to always learn from from them because when you when you're new, you bring in you know new perspectives, and we want to keep changing and innovating at the Celtics. So uh, the NBA board of government meetings have been fantastic. We we kind of learn from each other. We're very, very competitive, you know, both in private equity and both and in basketball. But uh, we are all part of the same league, and we want the league to prosper. And uh, having all those fantastic uh, people and those discussions in there, I think, has been good for the league and and, and good for the fans. I think Jason was looking over my shoulder at my questions, and he stole <laughs> stole my last question right here. That's typical Jason Kelly. <laughs> Atlanta guy versus Boston guy. You know, it just it just happens. And usually we don't win. I think both you guys know that Atlanta guys do not win. Let's, don't even say 28-3. Don't say it. Don't say it, Lynchy. I can hear you thinking it. You know, just I, you know, I've known you for a long time, Steve, and I grew up here. I've never left here, and and you guys have become a model franchise. And I remember when the, when you guys bought the team, it was one of the best kept secrets in town. I think it was right after Christmas, wasn't it? It was actually it was actually um, announced, I think, late in August that that we were purchasing the team, and and uh, it was one of the the few things that was actually secret till about a couple hours before. Yeah. And I was I was shocked because we we drove over to the facility the first time I've been to the facility out there in Waltham. It's only about a, a mile from my home. What can I drove over? And uh, you know I've been in private equity for many many years and and been working on billion dollar deals and two billion dollar deals. And uh, you know you know as Jason knows it, it, maybe a, a reporter or two would show up on those. But we walked in that facility and it was it, it looked like the lights went off, um, flashing bulbs. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was out of the scene of a movie. There was probably 300 people there scratching their heads to, uh, for what was to come next that we were able to, to purchase the team. So I'll, I'll never forget that day. It uh, it was about 90 degrees, um, very, 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 very humid, hot day in Boston. And we. It, the funny thing is, I drove over with Wick, and he had a he had a, kind of, kind of a, a car that had certain kind of locks on it, and. Uh, he, he he was really excited, so he bounded out of the car and closed his door, and then he, he ran inside the facility, 
And there I was. I couldn't figure out how to get out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, a, I had a suit on. It was 90 degrees. I was in a car. Uh, the car started to fog up, and I was writing, you know, help on the on the on the window <laughs> on the window screen. And fortunately, Wick, uh, after a few minutes, realized I wasn't there. Came back out, and we we got the door unlocked, and I I made it to the press conference. But I was I was definitely sweating. I wasn't nervous, but I was sweating because I was sitting in this car. But it was an incredible day, and uh, and 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 it's been it's just been a joy to own the team. We 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 actually uh, when we brought together the investor group, we told people. This was a labor of love. Uh, you know, we, we named the company Banner 17 to try to get the next banner. And we said it's not 17%, you know, return. It's really a community asset. And uh, and we were going to try to, best we could, win a championship and do a lot of things for the community. And we're very proud about that. And we're, we're proud about the management team and Rich Gotham and Danny Ainge. You know, all the guys, uh, Sully, uh, they've just been, they've just been uh, fabulous, out, fabulous out there. And uh, I think that culture, the culture, we, we try to continue the Red back. we brought back Red, and continue the family culture that the Celtics had, and I think that's paid the big dividend. So people like Kevin Garnett, you know, love Boston, love being a Celtic, and and that set off a, a virtuous circle of players wanting to come and play for a stable organization, a fantastic coach, a fantastic general manager, and uh, and I think we're seeing the, you know, the fruits of that right now and really enjoying it, and we've got a young young core and uh, hopefully that young core can, can continue to grow and, and we'll bring back more championships to Boston. But it's just been uh, amazing. And I, I, I really want to thank the fans. Uh, when, we, when we bought the team, they hadn't won the championship in 16 years. And Boston, is, as you know, uh, sees themselves as a, nothing short of a championship every year. But, but they bought into the strategy and they came back into the stands. You know, we bought the team. They were averaging 15,000. Uh, even in our first few years, we got it up to 16, 17, and then, then full houses as they saw the rebuilding program going on with stability. So they're, they're, they're a huge part of our success, and uh, and I'm really excited when, when we can get this uh, virus under control to see them back in the stadiums. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more so steve uh just as we wrap up here i mean one thing I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about is you have really been part and parcel and you have seen up close and personal the development and the evolution of the NBA being the core of player empowerment in many ways. And I do wonder, and, and we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the board of governors and the ownership groups. And, and I think we all alluded to the fact that the NBA and Commissioner Silver have been more progressive and, and maybe more forward thinking generally about things. What have you learned in these very tumultuous last few months, not just with the virus, but with a long overdue reckoning around racial inequity, systemic racism, et cetera? What have you learned in terms of what your role as an owner of a team and also a community leader and an investor, what that can be and what it should be? Well, it's been a very, very tumultuous year. Um, and, uh, uh you know, highlighted by by the uh, you know the social injustice uh, 
the Floyd situation. The Boston Celtics have always emphasized, and we certainly have emphasized, you know, you know, equality and uh, and social justice. And and part of our Shamrock Foundation, I think uh, much of the budget was spent on programs uh, with respect to that. Uh, what I realized is with, with these recent events is, is, is none of us has done enough. We haven't done enough. We have to do much more. Adam Silver's been a leader. The NBA's been a leader. But we really have to double and triple down on uh, correcting these inequities. And the league has, has always embraced and is embracing even more with the $300 million program. Uh, we, we, after that shooting, we got together uh, immediately immediately. Um, uh, after that horrific event, and spent the last uh, 10 or 12 weeks studying root causes. And we just announced, uh, kind of around 10 to 8 days ago, a $25 million program. Uh, we formed something called Boston Celtics United for Social Justice. And uh, we'll be spending um, in excess of $2 million a year uh, just focused on, on pillars, uh, six pillars that we've identified, root causes of social justice. They include education. Uh, healthcare, voting, bridging differences between communities, um, and a host of other issues. We're going to be working away at a, at a 10 and probably 20 year program of doing that. And our investor group has really stepped up uh, and contributed financially. And uh, our whole staff, uh, uh, there's 110 people signed up to Celtics on these six committees uh, with, with ex players, current players. Uh, we interviewed all the players and got what their issues were. So we're, we're really, uh, kind of excited about trying to make this change. And we need to make this change. It's not going to happen overnight. We recognize it couldn't be a quick PR splash. It's got to be a uh, you know, you know, long-term program that we work at it every day. We can't forget what happened, and we need to correct that. And, and we're not going to correct uh, 300 years of, of history uh, overnight, but we can do it, and I'm hoping we'll do it in, in our lifetimes uh, to see this country. And it's good for everybody in the country. And uh, everybody at the NBA is excited about doing that and partnering with players. What I love about the NBA is we, we have this kind of 50-50 deals with the players, and our players are uh, consulted by Adam and by, by all the, uh, the, the different franchises, and, and they have huge input in the league. And that partnership has really, I think, uh, uh, done well for us globally, and uh, we view it as, a, as a, uh, uh, really a partnership with the players to have a fantastic league and, 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 and really make an impact and make a difference to the community. And, and, and uh, this issue of social justice is, is huge, and I'm hoping we can make a large contribution you know, over the ten, next 10 years to, 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 to really make it be better. Well, Steve Paliuka, what a treat uh, for us. Thank you so much for spending so much time. I have to say, uh, and you'll appreciate this more than most, between me and Lynch, if you drew a Venn diagram of our interests and all of that, <laughs> you would be sitting smack in the middle of it. So between your success uh, and long tenure in private equity and with the Boston Celtics, uh, you, you have so much to offer, and, and we really appreciate you spending some time and, and from the bubble, no less. So thank you. Well, I've been I've been I've been very fortunate, and you know, my grandfather was a was an immigrant shoemaker from from Italy, worked in shoe factories. So, uh, I know America's a great place, and and we have to make it a great place for everybody. And and I'm I'm hoping um, the the next chapter, uh, you know, can can do that. And uh, excited about the future. So, uh, great to great to talk to you guys. And, and Lynchy, always always great to have another Boston guy on the phone. And uh, <laughs> uh, let let's keep on keeping on and. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we can turn it around down here. All right. 
So Steve Paliuka, as I joked, <laughs> Lynchy, this is like the guy who sits in the middle of the Lynchy Kelly Venn diagram. I, he's he's such an interesting guy. He really is. I've known him for all twenty years that he's owned the Celtics. Uh, he was a basketball player at Duke. Uh, his sons played basketball at Duke. Um, he's just a terrific guy. He's immersed himself in the community, and the whole ownership has immersed himself in the in the community. I mean, up here we're pretty parochial in Boston. We think the Celtics belong to us, the fans, right. and when new owners come. In it's like, uh oh, this is our team. What are you going to do? Are you going to dismantle them? Are you going to be the, uh, the the silent owner, the man behind the curtain? But no, Steve and Wick Grosbeck and Bob Epstein, um, that whole group has uh, done everything they've pledged to do: win a championship, which they did; be involved in the community, which they did; and get the fans involved. And they've done that. They all three of them sit right on the court side uh, yeah. through good times and through bad times. They're accessible. You can communicate with them, and they're well liked and they're well respected and uh, you can't say that about a lot of professional uh, professional franchises no i think that's exactly right and and listen i think anytime and and i know this from some of my other work anytime private equity guys enter into the picture eyebrows raise and there's a lot of skepticism as, as you alluded to uh i think it's probably good for the owners who have followed candidly from a private equity perspective that Pagliuca and his crew were the first because I think they set the tone to, to some extent mm-hmm. and, and, and modeled some behavior. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I do agree with it uh, because you're exactly right. Someone comes in, they're going to be a bottom line guy. What's going to happen? We're going to just we're going to cut payroll. We're not going to have the right. highest payroll in the league. You know, we're in here to make money for our investors, and would they come first before the fans and before raising a championship banner? They did it in reverse. Championship banner was uh, job one when they came in, and they made a big deal. They got Kevin Garnett, they got Ray Allen in here. They had a new big three, and they won a championship. And two years later, they went to Game Seven with the Lakers. So yeah, and they've been knocking, and they've been knocking on the door ever since. All right. So we're keeping it local here. Uh, and I hear you're working on a special project. People are buzzing down here in New York about it. Harvard football is for our 1061 Boston station up there near you. We're going to be re-airing some of the greatest Crimson games of the Tim Murphy coaching era. And there sure have been some legendary moments in Harvard football history. 66,000 fans <laughs> at the Yale Bowl and they're all here. The whole season's right here on the foot of Mike Lynch. Right-footed kicker, snap from center, good, ball down, kick up, it is good, it's good, Mike Lynch hits a 26-yard field goal, Mike Lynch, Harvard takes a 10-7 lead, and maybe the Ivy League title is going to ride back to Cambridge this afternoon. So there you have it, that's not any Mike Lynch, that's Lynchy, that's our Lynchy, that's amazing. You couldn't edit the 26. You couldn't put like a 56 in there instead of the 26. <laughs> Listen, it, it probably felt like more than 26, I'm guessing. Yeah, it did. Uh, it, was a, it was a great moment in 1975. It was the first time Harvard had ever won it outright. They had tied for the Ivy League title over the years, but they never won it outright. So it was it was a good win for all of us and, and the program and um, we were very, very proud that day, and I always blush a little bit when I hear it. It usually comes up uh, right around Harvard Yellow Week, but uh, we got a little jump on it. And with that, I guess I'm leading into what you were talking about. Uh, on Bloomberg 1061, we're going to be airing for nine weeks um, some classic Harvard football games from the Tim Murphy area. Uh, Tim Murphy took over in 1994. He's won, uh, I believe, 10 Ivy League titles. And uh, this week, it's going to be a game uh, which was about two months after 9 11. It was November 10th to mm. 2000. 
2001. Harvard and Penn both undefeated, untied at Harvard Stadium, and a great comeback by the Crimson, another win. So Bernie Corbett does the play-by-play. He talks to me, and I sort of throw my two cents in, and uh, it'll be airing on the, on Saturdays for the next nine weeks. Well, there you go. For those of you who need that dose of great Ivy League football, uh, you can get it on 106.1. All right, you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week for you at the same time, plus online. You can get the extended versions of our Steve Paliuka interview and all of our interviews. Catch our podcast Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. So glad that ball went through the uprights. And if I could hit my pitching wedge the way I hit that field goal, I'd be a four handicap. You can Follow me at Lynchy WCBB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.